Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host. Welcome, everyone. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice, a show that aspires to stand at the edge, the edge of what we know, what we understand, what's familiar or comfortable, to see what conversations emerge from there. We invite guests willing to explore that terrain with us. They may be expert in certain things, but none of us are expert in navigating this troubled time. So we will be wondering out loud together. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Alnur Ladha. Alnur's work focuses on the intersection of political organizing, systems thinking, storytelling, technology, and the decentralization of power. He's a founding member and the executive director of The Rules, a global network of activists, organizers, designers, coders, researchers, writers, and others dedicated to changing the rules that create inequality and poverty around the world. He's a writer and speaker on new forms of activism, the structural causes of inequality, the link between climate change and capitalism, and the rise of the global South as a powerful organizing force in the transition to a post-capitalist world. Alnur, welcome to Precipice. Thanks for having me, Annie. Um, it's so great to have you here. Uh, it's really fun because you're actually here. Mm-hmm. And so often when I'm doing interviews, the person I'm talking to is afar. So it's really lovely to actually have eye contact for a change. Um, so I guess I wanted to just start um, by talking a little bit about your work and, and the worlds that it straddles in the sense that I took a look at your Twitter account <laughs> <laughs> and you reposted um a bunch of articles in the past several weeks that really span the range of, of what you're looking at. Um, so on the one hand, we had uh, big data is accelerating corporate control of the global food supply. World's witnessing a new gilded age as billionaires' wealth swells to $6 trillion. Warning of ecological Armageddon after dramatic plunge in insect numbers. We also have Can basic income plus the blockchain build a new economic system? Psychedelic socialism? And uh, why capitalism wins and how a simple accounting move can defeat it? So it seems like your work is often looking at the darkest things that are coming and also the most uh, promising. And I'm wondering Mm. if you can speak about um, what it is to be weaving between those, those, Mm. those worlds. Yeah, I think part of what's happening right now is is we're at this bifurcation moment. It's extreme light and extreme dark. And because of the, the, the filter bubbles that we live in, it can be very easy to believe that one is winning <laughs> because there's so much of it and the the veracity of it and the strength of it and the, the sort of the, the sheer repetition of what you hear on both sides, both collapse and renewal are... Are, are sort of magnitudes ahead of what they were even 10 years ago. And so with this increasing novelty and and 
you know, in, 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 in many ways, it's not, it's just not, it's not just novelty, nor is it just repetition. It's this sort of combination of, of, um, hearing very similar memes and having them fed back in this exponentially fast feedback loop, right? And I think what's sort of necessary right now is to step outside of that, that bifurcation and feel the extreme light and the extreme dark simultaneously. That's sort of what's being asked of us in some way. And and part of the reason is uh, that we, we can't amputate either side of this reality, right? That if we just like focused on the solutions, we, we would we would uh, end up with this sort of tech utopian solutionism mindset because you don't know the sheer scale of what we're up against. And if you focus too much on, on the darkness and the gloom and Trump and what's happening in the U.S. and uh, inequality and climate change and poverty, you, you forget that the alternatives are already being built right now. And actually the two need each other, one to ground us in realism and the other to ground us in utopia. Mm-hmm. It sounds it sounds simple, <laughs> right? Mm. But not easy to um, make space for both of them, right? Um, I'm wondering mm. how you because you're also I mean you're really in the thick of it on both sides, and um, do you see people making space for it? How do you make space for for both and sort of keep keep open to both as opposed to just like pendulum swinging yeah. between them? Yeah, you know, part of the the evolution that we're going through is as a species is to be in this state of non-dual, non-binary thinking, and I see it as a practice. I, I, I don't think I'm necessarily that much better at it than anyone else. It, it's it's simply a practice, and then when you engage with it as a practice, and you're willing to feel all the darkness and all the grief and all the suffering, and know somehow that it is an extension of you, and also an extension of our collective consciousness on some level. You know, this is the reality we've manifested. And also be able to hold all the beauty and all the wisdom and all the truth, and also know that that is an extension of you. There, there is a there. There is some kind of um, I don't want to call it sort of uh, uh, eschaton, you know, as as Terence McKenna would call it, but some kind of transcendental object that is on the horizon. You know, you're moving towards something, but we just don't know what it is, and we don't know in what way it is, and and. Part of this practice is to be in the not knowing a lot about what the show is about. Right? Is is um, the, the most difficult thing to do in sort of Western rationalist culture that really prejudices and lifts up people who pretend to know, right? The whole world of expertise and confidence and, and, and competence, right? That is really sort of rooted in our culture. Uh, it, it really goes against that. So, so part of the, the practice of this non-binary thinking is actually a way to deprogram yourself from modernity itself and, and Western culture itself. And and I would go so far to say that, uh, you know, Western culture, um, and this is going to be contentious, right? Uh, uh, that, that sort of Western culture is the problem, 
And and I don't mean this in a personalized way, you know, that this community in California. No, it's and it's not Western culture just in the sense of American culture, although, you know, American cultural imperialism has really uh, sort of skyrocketed the disease. Um, but, you know, the culture that came out of the Neolithic Revolution in, in the Fertile Crescent and then Europe and then through colonialism and imperialism and genocide and all of those things is, is sort of manifested in, you know, what indigenous people call wetico. Right, the sort of mind virus of cannibalism and consumption and greed and immediate gratification and all of those things that are really sort of rooted in our culture. And and part of the practice of being in the not knowing is is actually an antigen to that. And so the practice in some ways is the solution. And not that I believe in a solution per se, I, you know, solution with sort of quotations. It is one way out of, of the sort of catastrophic bind of modernity that we're currently in. Mm-hmm. So it sounds to me like at least in part what you're talking about, and I know a lot of your work centers around this, is story, mm. right? Like what's, what is the story that we're standing in as we move through our days and yeah. figure out how to respond? And, um, and that the story of Western civilization is very linear, involves a lot of problem solving, mm-hmm. it's very black and white, mm-hmm. It you know some things are in and others are out, and mm-hmm. you're talking about a much more expansive, expanded uh, way of of understanding where we are and what there is to do. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yeah, yeah, and and you know this is the other thing about not knowing, right? That that can be tricky. Is somehow people believe that. Um, and this comes from like a lot of Eastern philosophy and Buddhism, right? That the, the no, not knowing is to be in the void. And I don't really come from that school. I come from more of a Sufi school, which is um, there's not knowing, but there's also not knowing with intention, mm-hmm. right? I, I have an intention in the not knowing, which is I have a prejudice and a bias towards the evolution of life and the evolution of human consciousness. And that has directionality to it. But the the means to achieve that directionality that's where i'm in the not knowing i still have preference and i still have bias you know clearly i want less suffering right and uh, i want less extraction and less commodification and which essentially means less capitalistic logic and so there's this interesting thing about like it's 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 not just not knowing <laughs> it's it's not knowing with a set of values that inform that not knowing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A few minutes ago, you mentioned um, Wetiko. Mm-hmm. I know you've written a bit about that. Can you talk a little bit for our listeners who might not know what that is about mm-hmm. that particular concept? Yeah, so it's um, an Algonquin word that uh, the lore is when um, some of the First Nations tribes initially met the Europeans, um, they started to reuse a word that literally meant cannibalism. So it initially referred to where there was really cold winters and um, if someone ate someone's body, um, they, they would say two things would happen. That they would, A, have an unnatural desire for more flesh and B, that they would get an icy heart. They would actually never recover from this act of desperation. And it was a word that wasn't actually in high usage. It was very seldomly used. And when the Europeans came, various tribes Cree, Algonquin, uh, and others, actually, um, 
started using this word uh, around European colonization. And then it was popularized in an, a beautiful book called Columbus and Other Cannibals by Jack D. Forbes, uh, who is a great Native American scholar at the University of California. And, and the premise is really simple. It, it, it's um, ideas are like thought forms are like viruses. You know, we would call it a meme now, right? A meme is just the, the cultural equivalent of a gene. And it's communicable. It passes from one person to another. It, it morphs and mutates according to its host and the, the context and the cultural environment. And at the, at the sort of very root of Western culture is this cannibalistic impulse to eat itself, to eat its mother, to eat everything around it. If there was one word to define Western culture, it would probably be consumption, right, from a modern perspective. Um, you know, we're defined by what we own, by what we consume. Status is just another form of consumption. The way we even treat most relationships and relationships with non-anthropocentric life, non-human life, is... A form of consumption. And so the, the, the point of sort of understanding where to go is not just to, to be in that darkness, just to lament, right? But what we know from meme theory and a lot of what's happening in evolutionary theory and cognitive linguistics is as soon as you understand the nature of a mimetic virus, an idea virus, it has less control over you. So part of the reason for naming it and understanding it and not shying away from the fact that Western culture was born out of genocide and imperialism and slavery and extraction. Um, and, and, you know, the mantra of, of uh, you know, of the, let's say, the economic operating system that it's, that's at the root of, of um, the Western model is the idea of the invisible hand. You know, it's the stickiest meme, if you will. Um, which is the idea if everybody pursues their self-interest, somehow some perfect equilibrium will be created. And even though we have 30 years of econometric data to prove that this trickle-down neoliberal, um, neoclassical economics is totally bullshit. Am I allowed to say that? Well, you just did. <laughs> um, you know, it's totally bankrupt, philosophically, economically, intellectually, in every way. Um, it doesn't work. Yet, it's taught in every economics textbook, right? And that's the power of a sticky meme. That's the power of, of um, an idea that serves the interest of the system. And this is also not a conspiracy theory. I, I, when you understand the biography of ideas and how memes work, um, especially in our system, so it's, the system itself, let's call it the global economic system or the operating system, is a complex adaptive evolutionary system. It's alive, right? It's the market system is the greatest Frankenstein we've ever created. It is artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not waiting for singularity. We are in singularity because there's one globalized economy that has cannibalized all forms of life, right? We used to, there used to be multiple ways to acquire goods and services, barter, trade, gift, um, fishing, creation of your own goods, you know, the, the, the sort of artisanal craft. And now there's one way to acquire goods and services, which is debt-based capital, which is, you know, printed by um, private reserves owned by corporations. And so this sort of monopoly on the, 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 the sort of very lifeblood of this operating system has, has, sort of means that the, the people who best serve the logic of that system are the ones who get rewarded. So it's not like there's a merit system, which is what we're told, right? You go to the right schools, you work hard enough, somehow the system will reward you. But it's the opposite. If you serve the logic of the system, which is at a fundamental level to increase GDP, 
anyone who comes to power. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, um, as we know, have seen, you know, Morales and socialist Ecuador, uh, or or even when someone like a, a, a Jeremy Corbyn in the UK or Bernie Sanders in the US comes to power, they're going to have one primary objective, which is to increase GDP and, and to increase, you know, we'll, they'll couch it in job creation or whatever else. But that's the logic of the system. And so, that's all that really matters in the system. And in order to do that, you in what will what is the logic of the system? We just have to look around us, right? It's short-termist, it's greedy, it's extractionist, it, it's life-denying. It requires the destruction of life. And the last thing I'll say on this is, look, economists will tell us that these are externalities, that these, right, you know, this word externality that gets used all the time, that it's some byproduct, some side effect of the system. But it's actually the opposite. These things are hardwired into the logic of the system because if your values are to increase GDP by any means necessary, which is the prime directive of the global economy, then of course everything else is secondary to that. Life is secondary to that. So by its very definition, it is going to sort of result in climate change and inequality. And we know this, right? Every dollar of wealth created, about 93, 94 cents ends up in the hands of the top 1%. So by definition, wealth creation creates inequality. For every dollar of wealth created, it heats up the planet because we have a fossil fuel extractive based system. So by definition, capitalism creates climate change. These are not externalities of the system, no matter what we're told. And yet the only solution any of the power elite, policymakers, government officials, etc. have is to increase GDP. And they'll phrase it in different ways, job creation, or if it's in other places in the world, they'll say foreign direct investment or, you know, quote unquote, development which is just another, for, uh, another word for, for colonialism. And so this is what we mean about the, the sort of the root of the system, the logic of the system is a wetical logic. And it is fueled by the, the sort of selfish hand. Selfishness is rational and everyone wants to be rational. Therefore, we have the world we deserve if we believe in that, in that mythos, in that storyscape, as you referred to at the beginning of the question. Mm-hmm. So... You have a very sophisticated understanding of these systems and of the stories um, that perpetuate them. And you talked about that. I really liked what you said about we're we're not waiting for the singularity. We're in the singularity. Mm-hmm. It's already there's already this this one enormous monolithic monster mm-hmm. that that is a form of artificial intelligence. It's it's functioning on its own logic, it whether we want it to or not. And I'm wondering. Um, after all of the years that you've spent um, with the rules, which where where I know a lot of your work is is really trying to to find the pressure points and mm-hmm. to deconstruct this, or to you you talked about that if we understand the virus, it has less control over us. Um, what what do you see as the pressure points um, as far as some capacity to to shift this like I, mm. I suddenly I said pressure point and I'm thinking about about acupuncture mm, right mm. like if this thing is alive if mm. this is a living being that has sort of gotten out of control and we were wanting to shift the the streams of energy of that being in such a way that something might change mm. do you have thoughts on mm. on what yeah w- where those points might be yeah, no, it's a, this is a great question. And, and, and maybe the way to go into it is, is back to the operating software analogy. 
where there's there's uh, software and there's hardware, and the software is really culture, right? And and one of the ways we we the the, the acupuncture point from a software perspective is distributed, right? Just like all software is. So it's actually each of us behaving as if we're already free, mm. right? The very act of gifting, for example is a revolutionary act because what it does is it undermines the logic of the system which is based on transactionalism and commodification and and so there, there's there's doing it intentionally because you know the dark and you have a critique of the system and you don't believe that sort of politics is not for you <laughs> which is kind of the reason we don't do this intentionally as soon as you understand the ideology and you, you sort of develop a critique of the ideology which is not difficult to do but it it, what it requires is that you go against what is what you're told is your own culture, which is why when I said that point about Western culture is the disease, I knew it would be a trigger for a lot of people because a lot of people will then self-identify with Western culture, but I'm a Westerner. And of course, so am I, right? I was socialized by Canadians. I was, you know, I grew up in, in, in Vancouver. And so what we're somehow led to believe is that this culture represents us. And if we swallow that pill, then it's very difficult to be outside of the system and to have that critique. So I, I, the, the software sort of acupuncture point requires us to first say, this is not a culture that represents me. I look around and see 200 species a, a day going extinct and the requirement of perpetual war to increase GDP and fossil fuel extraction and uh, impoverishment and you know the, the, all of these things are necessary for this current system to exist and by by first sort of acknowledging that and standing outside of that and saying western culture does not represent me it, it's almost like you're clicking the allow button you know on the software upgrade <laughs> and, and then you can have your rebellious acts with with intention you know there's this great Camus line where he says uh, a true artist doesn't know how to just rebel. They know how to be free. I'm paraphrasing something like that. And I say, I also say this to activists a lot. And it's not just activists. It's I, I think anyone who's awake during and anyone who's you know I really believe has decided to incarnate during these troubled times has an obligation in some way to not only know how to rebel, but to know how to be free. And and to be an activist is not. Uh, it's, it's not a, a sector or a job that you do, right? Because that's also the sort of Western ideal that we're somehow dentists and lawyers and accountants and these sort of hegemonic regimens of, of, of identity. And it's like, we all have to be active because we've chosen to be here at this time where life is sort of, you know, it's on the precipice. It really is. And and this is going to be a horse race. And it actually requires all of our involvement. And when, when you get to that state, when you press that OK button on that software upgrade, then I think a, a suite of alternatives open up to you, right? Everything from what we talked about, the sort of gift and alternative communities and economies and to the very act of opting out and, you know, not contributing to the existing system, which is, you know, in some ways... Um, See, seems like a more radical choice. Um, and I don't know if it is. You know, I, I know people who, who sort of live those lives totally outside of the system. Um, 
and you know refuse to you know they they do upcycling and refuse to use debt based capital and what and and they they're they're happier than most people I know uh, you know this is the sort of like Derek Jenkinson argument you know he's more in that sort of camp but but also I think the the idea of like uh, traditional activism and and the the idea of spiritual activism and and also the idea of of being sort of within the system because you know we, let's be honest we have mortgages and children in schools and you know all sorts of uh, programs running that don't just by pressing that button and deciding you want to opt out and you want to sort of be one of those acupressure points in, in the software it doesn't happen overnight right and not all of us can go move to alternative communities and have that type of infrastructure so a lot of people have to be within the system but th- there's a role within that to be an assassin within the, the system right and and what blocks that is this idea of consistency and contradiction right what western culture does is it it tells us that we somehow need to be consistent we can't work for some marketing company or the world bank or the gates foundation knowing or the UN, you know, knowing the sort of evil they perpetuate in the world and yet be against the system, right? That's that's an internal contradiction. But it's actually in that messiness and in that contradiction that we can do our best service. You know, and I know people who are within these corporations who, who are assassins of sorts, mimetic or otherwise, you know, and they are trying to destroy that system. And it's hard, that's a very hard task to do because you're, you're incentivized to want to keep it alive. And privilege is a constraint. So it's actually a much more dangerous dance to do that. But I understand why people do. So I, I think there's the, that, that option set of how you do the software acupressure point is infinite. And then from a hardware perspective is really debt-based capital. That's the lifeblood of the system. So anything that can challenge the hegemony of debt-based capital has huge, huge potential, right? Because all money is, is a social arrangement. As soon as people decide that they're not going to pay that money back, that entire system collapses. And what, you know, this is sort of economics 101, but in a growth system, you need your growth to exceed your interest rate in order for that money to be paid back. So as soon as people say that money is not going to be paid back, this growth machine that's destroying all of life is going to have a spanner in the works, right? Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the, the two places I would look. Mm-hmm. But but again, you know, I don't have the answer to this, right? I, I think it is emerging and it's happening and it's distributed through millions and millions of people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's so many things to follow up on from that. Um, you were talking about people who work within the system and and are sort of acting in some way as what you described as assassins. But so so behaving in ways that undermine the the logic or the um, structure itself such that it might eventually hmm. crumble, right? And I, I personally find that so challenging in the times that I've tried to do it mm-hmm. because I find that the logic of the system mm-hmm. is so powerful. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to, it's almost like I think of the movie The Matrix mm-hmm. where you have to be, able to see through entirely different eyes. You need to be moving through the space with some distance from it. And I guess I'm just curious, have you had any experiences of doing that? And and how do you um, approach being within the systems mm. while holding some other possibility uh, in the space that you're in? 
Yeah, I guess in some ways I've always chosen to be um, an assassin on the outside. Okay. And and that's just a preference thing, right? It's it's and and it's a context thing and a lifestyle thing, and you know, obviously being uh, a sort of a brown man, you know, of sort of Arabic Indian descent with East African parents, being raised in Canada, it's it's it would it would have been more difficult for me to be inside the system in some ways. Um, and actually see people who are doing this work inside the system, as you say, as the more difficult work in some ways. And I, I think the, the thing to, to hold as well, if you're trying to do reform, and I'm not against reform, I think reform and revolution are simultaneously necessary. It's, it's a preference thing. And, uh, I, and this is where I go back to, I actually think this is deep spiritual work. Right. For, for me, all of this stuff about purpose, right, and the whole um, self-help industrial complex, right, that, that I've sort of critiqued in, in, in other spaces. Um, and, you know, everyone from Oprah to, to Tony Robbins, right, has a sort of bet in this game telling us, well, where should we actually be? Because that's, it's really a subjective moral question, right, of, of where should we be in, in, in that game? Uh, it's deeply problematic, right? Because actually what this is, to decide where you want to be an assassin, the first question is, well, why did I incarnate during troubled times? And how do I be in service to Gaia and the unfolding that's happening? And how do I be a good ancestor? And then therefore, how do I use the gifts that I have to be in service to that? And when you ask those questions, you end up in a very different place. And I think the traditional battle of sort of reform within a system is secondary to that. Because once you, you, you sort of know why you're doing that, all of the answers sort of come into place. And whether that's dropping the occasional meme bomb or sabotaging an entire communications network, you know, which is less reformist. Uh, I think the omens unveil themselves. And when you heed the omens, the answers unveil themselves. All right. It's time to take a short break. My guest today is Alnur Lada, Executive Director of The Rules, a global network of activists, organizers, designers, coders, researchers, writers, and others dedicated to changing the rules that create inequality and poverty around the world. You can learn more about their work at therules.org. And we will be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head on opening up new places of power and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Do you know that you were born to experience revolutionary wellness? Have you wondered why extraordinary physical, mental, and emotional health has eluded you? 
Do you know that your infinite personal power resides right here in the present moment? People all over the world are awakening to their birthright. Revolutionary Wellness. Subscribe today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com and begin your journey into the mystery. Engage with experts in topics of nourishment, wisdom, and empowerment. Develop mental clarity, live wholeheartedly, and be empowered to live an authentic life of passion and purpose. The world, now more than ever, needs you to feel revolutionarily well. Explore and integrate new ways of being. Learn to access your own unique treasure, the wisdom that is right there inside you, waiting to be revealed. Experience a renewed, vivid, and nourishing relationship with yourself and the world around you. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today and experience the publication devoted to your journey toward extraordinary health and well-being. RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Yeah. Welcome back to Precipice. I'm Annie Levin, and my guest today is Alnur Ladha. Executive Director of The Rules, a global network of activists, organizers, designers, coders, researchers, writers, and others dedicated to changing the rules that create inequality and poverty around the world. So before the break, the one of the last things you said is you were talking about the questions from which action might arise. So Mm. you were saying, if we ask the question, why did I incarnate in a troubled time? And if we ask the question, what kind of ancestor do I want to be? If we ask those kinds of questions, we may come to very different answers than if we ask the questions that um, might be the most obvious questions that the culture would have us ask. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I guess I just want to spend a little more time there Mm -hmm. uh, because I think that's such an important point that as we, that that the questions that we ask really matter Mm. um, and the things that we wonder about really matter and something like a question, gosh, why, why was I born at this time to, to even imagine that, that there was a reason for that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. has a person start to look at, well, if they're, was a reason for me to be here, then what are the gifts that I have mm-hmm. and how do I put them into service? Mm-hmm. Um, it really, it's very clarifying. And I wonder if we can just speak with, about that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so, uh, for and full disclosure, Annie and I share, uh, um, uh, I don't even think we can call him a teacher because he probably would deny uh, teachership. But but uh, someone whose readings and writings and teachings we admire and we've spent some time with, a man named Stephen Jenkinson. And he wrote a beautiful book I highly recommend called Die Wise. And in that book, he says something that I'm going to extrapolate and build on. But the gist of what he's saying, and, and, I, and I hope to, to get it right, is in indigenous cultures, um, purpose was always understood as 
being a good ancestor. You were of place. And you knew where you would get buried. And that was the place where your community would live. And so there was a cycle that was fed. You were in service of the land, and you prayed to the ancestors and were in service and in dialogue with them. And then you became an ancestor, and you were buried on that same piece of land, and then the cycle continues. And so the whole existential angst and ennui of purpose doesn't exist in those cultures, because it's it's um, more hermetic and it's more of place, and there's a relationship with with Gaia, the mother, whatever you want to call it, right? That is sort of inherent in that configuration. And then you you have the more what he would call the orphan cultures, the homeless cultures of the West, where there's high levels of migration and trauma and grief from killing and being killed that's never ever like recognized. And we don't know where the bones of our ancestors are, and we don't know where sort of place is, and therefore we're obsessed with with purpose, right? And this is what is exploited by the self-help industrial complex and the Tony Robbins and the Oprahs of the world and the Deepak Chopras of the world, right? In your lostness, I will sell you my ideology or Vedic ideology or yogic ideology or Buddhist ideology or whatever. And, and I think part of what's happening right now in the world is this revolution has three parts, at the very least, you know, and I, and I hate to sort of compartmentalize and segregate in that way, but for the sake of discourse, let's say there's three aspects to it. There's the political economic, right? We're understanding that none of us are free until all of us are free. And until we create a new global system that is based on localism and indigenous stewardship of land and interdependence, and we're, we're, we're probably not going to have a planet to inhabit. So, so that's really the, the economic stuff that I, you know, in some ways, I guess I spend my day job doing, right? Then there's the, the, the aspect of community and eros, you know, this rethinking of how we want to be interrelationally. And if we are going to be outside of culture, we have to start deciding on what ways do we want to be outside of culture because we don't want to do that alone, right? And, and we're seeing the breakdown of traditional relationships and nuclear families. And um, so that's sort of pillar two, right? And then... Pillar three, in some ways, is this sort of new metaphysics that's being born, the, 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 the gnosis, if you will, the sort of direct experience-based um, mystical, spiritual understanding of reality. And all three are totally interdependent. It's not like there's a revolution in one and the other. This revolution is sort of spiritual and mystical, it is relational, uh, and it is political, economic, cultural. All of it is happening at the same time. And the, the sort of idea that um, somehow, you know, if we're, if we're really going to sort of understand what, what's at the root of, of what we're doing is, we, we, as a species, we really have to go back to, to the sort of the spiritual path that was lost. And even the idea of spirituality is such a triggering word. Like we, new language is being born, but we don't have it yet, right? Mm -hmm. and, and for the sake of simplicity and ease, let's just use that word. And, and because of the scar most of us have from Judeo-Christian, Islamic, traditional, monotheistic, totalitarian religion, 
where where it's very hard for us to sort of understand what spirituality would be outside of those constructs. And for those of us who are in those constructs, who believe in you know the original traditions uh, of of Western culture, it's very hard to see outside of that construct. But yet, what's happening all around us is some kind of synthesis of these new mystical traditions, right? So we're seeing um, the spread of shamanism through ayahuasca, San Pedro. Uh, psilocybin, you know, all sorts of traditional cultures that had sacraments are now um, expanding globally. For all the shadow of globalization, this is one of the few sort of, you know, sources of silver lining. Um, we're seeing the, the resurgence of Sufism, of esoteric Buddhism, of Kabbalah, of Gnosticism, the Christian mysticism. And somehow this new way is being created. And not to say there is even one way, because how could there be, right? This is the, the, the way of the pathless path. But I, I think what's central to this, to just close that loop on, on purpose, is it, it, for the sake of simplicity, let's say there's two worldviews, right? There's the, the rationalist, mechanistic worldview, which is the idea of cause and effect and linearity. Things happen to you. And then there's the mystical worldview, which is about non-linearity and non-locality and things happen through you, through entanglement, co-agency, context. It's much more in line with quantum physics and, and really all the wisdom traditions of the planet essentially move to that way. And in, in that lens, things aren't happening to you, things are happening through you, which is a fundamentally different way to see the world. Right. And so if we hold that lens in this inquiry, then we get to questions like and, and nowhere do I uh, do I mean to uh, suggest or allude to the fact that these are the only questions. Right. It's just we're just going back to first principles. And there are some basic questions we need to ask. Why are we here? Where are we going? What is beauty? What is truth? What is goodness? All of the things our education system sort of doesn't prepare us for uh, and it would be crazy for them to ask those questions because they're trying to make good vocational automatons to fill jobs at Hewlett-Packard and Starbucks right which is a fundamentally the, the education has lost its sort of purpose civilizationally it's not connected to that it's only connected to the operating system the economic operating system of neoliberalism or late stage capitalism or market fundamentalism, whatever you want to call this Frankenstein, this artificial intelligence we've created. And so I think going back to first principles, the question I, I start with when I think about where do I want to spend my time and is why did I choose to incarnate during troubled times? And, and there's something, there's an implicit in that, right? Which, which is there was choice in that somehow which is very mystical, right? It, it, this scares a lot of, of sort of rationalists and a lot of people who hold scientific materialism as a worldview. But, but what, what's sort of at the core of, of the question is, is actually what was at the core of the Egyptian, the ancient Egyptian cultures, or e even in esoteric Sufism, a lot of what we talk about is that uh, we have star ancestors and they negotiated with our physical DNA line. So we had these two sets of ancestors and we had some say in that, which body we chose to incarnate in. And this comes up with questions of the soul and, you know, all, all of these things that are, you know, I think for some people will be a non-starter. And I don't think we have to start there. But for me, in my personal inquiry, I, I spent a lot of time going into that. And not just in meditation, but even in 
psychedelic space, you know, and we haven't really talked about psychedelics and nor do I know if it's cool to talk about psychedelics in this venue, but we will, um, because how could we not? Um, because I think the plants have a lot of key, you know, the plants are millions of years older than us evolutionarily. And every sophisticated culture has had their sacrament and has had a symbiotic relationship with plants. The Egyptians had blue water lily and mandrake root. The Indians had soma, whether that's psilocybin or not. They also had ganja. Uh, the the Aztecs had um, also had psilocybin. They also had um, uh, San Pedro. The Incas had ayahuasca as their main sacrament, but also San Pedro. And and so. We, the Siberian shamans had Amanita muscaria and and a lot of the, the sort of, you know, Eastern European Northern Bloc worked with those mushrooms that the Santa Claus mythology is built on, right? And so I, I think part of this question and this inquiry is to ask the questions, but to ask more learned questions and to ask them with allies such as plants. And there's something in humbling yourself in front of a plant that sort of could never really occur. And in itself is a very revolutionary act. Because again, if gifting is radical because it goes against mainstream dominant culture, the the, the reverence and humbling in front of and to plants is equally, if not more, revolutionary. And I think this is where a lot of these questions will come up. The discovery of what question makes sense for you, as well as the potential answers or the directionality of answers. Mm-hmm. So I want to challenge one thing mm-hmm. or, or introduce a, a complexity, that, that, which is you know, some of what you're talking about, for instance, with psychedelics, and that there's potentially some real um, gifts that have come out of um, an expanded use of psychedelics mm-hmm. within Western culture. Mm-hmm. There's a shadow side to that as mm-hmm. well, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have um, some of these plants becoming endangered, where you have mm-hmm. sort of capitalism swooping in to make mm-hmm. as much money off these plants as possible. And, um, and it occurs to me that, that perhaps there's something there in what we talked about at the beginning with the light and the dark mm-hmm. and the dance between them. And um, and I'm and then something that's coming up to, for me is is something around humor. Mm. Like I, I I know that your approach often has a bit of or, or play. Mm. And I guess I'm I'm just I'm not even sure what the question is, mm. but it's something around um it's it feels like that almost every time something some um, something appears that has some real opening mm-hmm. capacity, the the capitalist structures swoop in and mm-hmm. contort it mm-hmm. to their own to their own purposes. Mm-hmm. But then it doesn't negate the other thing that came forth. Mm-hmm. So I, I I'm just wondering if you have any response mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think you know this also happened very clearly in Western culture during the hippie movement, right? That this this counterculture that was seen as desirable and um, edgy and cool and sexy and all of these things was just, like sold back to them in Levi's commercials and Coca-Cola commercials and 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 whether it's a it's an ideology of free love and access to plants and. Um, you know, screw the man, and you know, all, 
or if it's like a very tangible revolutionary tool, like sitting in in sacred ceremony with ayahuasca, you know, in a in an Amazonian tradition of some kind, the system is always going to co-opt it, right? And a part of us feels like legitimized by that in some way, right? There, there's this place in New York called Assemblage. It's this new sort of shared office space and living space and you go in there and it's got this sort of neo-shamanic music and there's like ayahuasca patterns and 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 somehow that tribe feels validated by that because now and it's like a thousand dollars for a hot desk or something ridiculous like that right and they believe they're doing something good and the people who are there somehow believe that their culture has been validated and this comes back to what we said at the beginning is like the only way that this sort of dialectical battle between light and dark is going to happen in a way that is useful to evolution before too late is to for us to hold the utmost critique the, the the strongest understanding of what is wrong with that shadow without amputating it and not be in the place well I don't want to hold critique because I want to feel good I don't want to get involved in politics because it brings me down or whatever the sort of set of stories that we create in in our sort of you know oxytocin addicted culture is but then also to be fully embracing the light to see, you know, I walk into a place like assemblage and I see the beauty of what is possible. But I also know this isn't it. And I also know that, you know, that the nature of the system and the nature of culture itself is to do that, right? There was Occupy posters selling at Walmart for um, like $59 or something in December 2011, like two months after Occupy, you know, made in China, frames, the whole thing, like shipped through a production system, globalized, whatever. And that's the logic of this Frankenstein. It is the ultimate super virus. And in order to battle that, we really have to be able to hold both simultaneously. And the things that we revere sacred, we have to redefine what it means to be sacred. We have to contribute to the morphogenetic field of sacredness and, and humble ourselves and honor ourselves to these plants and these traditions. Because if we bring the consumer mindset into ceremony of what do I get out of this? I've just spent $200. Let me use this as a form of status to tell other people how cool I am or how interesting I am. Then all we're doing is we're replicating the mimetic virus of that culture. And when I say we have to live as if we're free, what I'm really talking about is living the post-capitalist ideals, living with generosity and reciprocity and selflessness, and not for our own self-evolution, because that's just another trick of self-help Western culture, but for the evolution of all life. And that's a fundamentally different way to sort of approach why I'm engaging with anything and why I'm critiquing something and why I'm holding the alternative so high because all of life is at stake now. It's not just about my personal development. And what culture does, knowingly or not, is to try to make it about the personal because then if it's just about your personal choice on what your evolution and what your growth path is going to be, then it's very easy to to commodify and to co-opt and to transactionalize all these other aspects of culture because you don't have a point of view on what sacred is. And that's the first radical act, is to demarcate, is to put the gauntlet in the ground and say, this is holy to me. That's actually what mysticism is. And I think this is why mysticism and anarchism are the same impulse. It's a disintermediation from power. It's self-definition of what beauty is and what the sacred is. And that's something that if we actually claimed as a civilization, we would not be in this sort of, you know, 
Orwellian nightmare that we're in. The last thing, one of the last things you said was, this is holy to me. Is, is a demarcating of the sacred personal? Like this is holy to me? Or is it, is it demarcating something that's holy that is outside of the personal? I framed that as a binary mm, question, mm-hmm. but I appreciate it's probably not. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the what, what is sacred inherently transcends subject object duality in in many ways that it's that is its purpose. You don't know where you begin and where it ends. And so inherently it is communal then, right? It is something we decide collectively, but it is also something I know internally. But until I decide that right that the, the the subject itself has to decide that it wants to merge or blur with that object or hold it in reverence or in reification and i think there is always a personal decision and this is a lot of the fear people have around a more collectivist anarchist approach is that somehow the the self is going to be lost right that's the standard you know debate and it's actually the opposite it's the 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 self gets to be the most like creative curator of consciousness itself so we have just a few minutes um based on everything we've talked about what are a few books that you really recommend that people read Mm. yeah i I think if the uh, the objective is to get outside of culture itself, to see the myriad ways in which we're programmed. Because we have no idea. I have no idea. You know, e- even if in any of, of this conversation, Annie and, and audience, that um, we, we, that, you know, you have mistaken my inquiry for knowing, I ask for your forgiveness because I don't, right? This is sort of part of this process uh, in the not knowing. Um, and sort of guidepost to that, or really, the the question for me is really, what is what's the quickest? What what has helped assist the the dissolving of boundaries and to be able to see outside of culture? And for that, I, I really go to Terence McKenna quite a bit, both all, you know all his online talks, all his podcasts. Um, the the folks at Psychedelic Salon do a great job of curating his stuff. Um, but Terence McKenna was one of the greats, right? Product of this culture, sort of post hippie, sort of 70s, 80s, 90s. This this great sort of ethnobotanist and psychedelic explorer, and also probably the most articulate man uh, of the 20th century, um, at least orally. And then. Um, I also think Stephen Jenkinson, you know, who we both know and love and revere, um, because he goes through that same place of boundary dissolving, but through a universal of grief and death and dying. But it is really, at its core, a critique of modernity. Um, so die wise, definitely. Um, I also think in the in the fiction category, um, both Aldous Huxley and Herman Hesse as sort of like the two great. Um, critical theorists and philosopher kings of, of Western literature. You know, the glass bead game is the ultimate critique of, of Western abstract thought. Um, and the island uh, and doors of perception by Huxley, highly recommend. Uh, Columbus and Other Cannibals by Jack D. Forbes, which we talked a bit about before. Um, and for the more sort of uh, poetic anarchist flourish, I would say Temporary Autonomous Zone 
by Hakeem Bey. All right. Thank you. We have our work cut out for us. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being here, Alnor, and uh, for your incisive and creative thinking and your sense of uh, play, sort of not holding any of this too tightly in deconstructing and dreaming outside of the systems that cause inequality and poverty around the world. My guest today has been writer, thinker, and speaker, Alnur Lada, executive director of The Rules, a global network of activists, organizers, designers, coders, researchers, writers, and others dedicated to changing the rules that create inequality and poverty around the world. Thanks, Alnur. Thank you, Annie. Thanks for having me. Next week, Precipice will be back with Tony Albrecht, attorney, blogger, and co-founder of Axis, a virtual support group for creative people. Please join us for that conversation at this time, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. It has been such a pleasure to be here with all of you today. Thank you for listening in. Until next time, may we stand on the edge, unblinking, together. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing to greater degrees of compassion, and to pathways to health for our world with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel. 